Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Last week, as you may recall, we considered how God is a God who cares for his people through his word. And last week we saw that his word came through the mouth of the angel Gabriel for Zechariah and Elizabeth and the other Jews living during that time. But for us today, God still cares for his people through his word, but now it comes through his inscripturated word, the preaching of the gospel, the reading of God's word, the sacraments. This is how God cares for his people. And this theme will be continued this evening as we see that the angel Gabriel makes another announcement, but this time it's to the Virgin Mary about the coming of the long-awaited king. So please turn your attention to uh, the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, the grass withers and the flower uh, flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, this last Thursday was, of course, Thanksgiving. And this is a time for all of us to reflect upon the many blessings and many things that we have to be thankful for. And as, as I was reflecting on such things, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20 came to mind. Paul says this, that we are to give thanks always and for everything in the name of God the Father, or to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think we all would admit that's quite difficult. Giving thanks always and for everything. Sure, we can be thankful once a year, but living a life of gratitude, being thankful, especially in the midst of difficult circumstances, 
and even for difficult circumstances, that's, that's a different story. Well, in our text this evening, as I mentioned, the angel Gabriel is now coming to make another announcement, but this time it's to the Virgin Mary, and this prophecy, this announcement, is about the conception and birth of Christ. And in this announcement, we learn about who this Christ is. And more specifically, we learn about the kingship of Christ. In verse 38, we see Mary's response to the kingship of Christ, who this baby that she will bear is and will continue to be. As she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What's that? Mary's response to what God's going to do through her, especially to Christ himself and his kingship, is one of humble submission. Humble submission. Now, humble submission and gratitude seem to go hand in hand. A heart that's humbly submitting to God is a heart that's able to receive God's providence, whether it be trial or blessing, with contentment, with gratitude. Because it's that heart that acknowledges that that it is not sovereign, that God is sovereign. Thus, understanding the kingship of Christ I think is key to living this life of gratitude always and in everything, as Paul says. Understanding the kingship of Christ is key for us to be able to respond as Mary responded, with this humble submission, which gives way to gratitude. So boys and girls, sort of like when you, if you've ever been to a 3D movie, when you go to a 3D movie, you have to Get, or you receive these, these glasses before you go into the theater. Because without the glasses, you're not, really going to, you're not really going to make out what's on the screen. It's going to be fuzzy and blurry, but you put the glasses on, and everything comes into focus. Well, in a similar way, I think understanding the kingship of Christ causes our life to sort of come into focus, and we're able to then give thanks, always and in everything, as Paul calls us, to do. So this evening, I want us to reflect upon three particular aspects of the kingship of Christ and how each one of these aspects leads to to this life of gratitude, which we are called to live. The first aspect I want us to consider together is that we have an eternal king, an eternal king. But before we consider this, let me briefly set the context of this passage. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary, who is this young, largely unknown girl. We don't know exactly what her age was, but based on what we know about the first century and women of that age, she likely was, was a teenager because she was, we know that she was betrothed. Uh, she was betrothed to be married, and girls in the first century were betrothed as, as early as 12 to 13 years old. Uh, so she may have even been that young, but she likely was at least a teenager. So this is a young girl, uh, unknown girl, in a Nazareth, which is a small, obscure town that's not highly regarded at all. And this is the setting. Notice the contrast in setting with this announcement and the announcement we considered last week with Zechariah. Zechariah is in Jerusalem at the temple in the holy place as the people of Israel are gathered around to pray 
as Gabriel makes that announcement to him about John the Baptist. You can't really get more grand than that. You're in Jerusalem at the temple, the most sacred place for a Jewish person. This is the complete opposite. This is a lowly regarded town to a young virgin girl, private. There's no one else around. I think this foreshadows, in some sense, the life of humiliation that Christ indeed will live. Christ isn't coming in earthly grandeur or power. He's coming as a servant. And this announcement, I think, even sets the stage for his life in which he will live. We saw in Philippians 2 a few months ago that he will continue to go lower and lower and lower for us, that we might rise to the heights as we reign with him for all eternity. In verse 29, we see Mary's reaction to this angel is one of perplexity. I think we can feel that. She, you know, she likely was thinking, what, what does Gabriel, this angel, have to do with me? I'm just a lowly girl from a, a lowly town. I mean, last time Gabriel showed up on the scene was in Daniel as he prophesied about this coming of Christ. You can almost imagine her jaw dropping. What does Gabriel have to do with me? Gabriel says something even more outrageous, I'm sure, according to, to Mary, as he says that it's going to be through her womb that the long-awaited king, the Messiah, is going to be born. In context of this point, the long-awaited eternal king will come into this world. And we see this particularly in verses 32 through 33. That this, this king, this Messiah, will have an eternal reign and an eternal kingdom. As Gabriel says, he will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Here Gabriel is referring to the Davidic covenant and promise that was, that was uh, given to David in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7, God promised to David that he would build him a dynasty. That one of David's descendants will be on the throne. If there is a king in Israel, it will go through the line of David. Forever. This is an unconditional promise. David will have a dynasty. But God also promised that for one of David's sons, he would grant to him an everlasting reign. So one of David's sons would have this everlasting reign. But in order for that son to earn that everlasting reign, he would have to be obedient. That was the condition for that second promise. And over and over throughout the Old Testament, we see that every king failed. They didn't do what God wanted them to do. Rather, they went off into idolatry. As the king goes, so goes the people. So as Mary is hearing this, she's likely thinking, God is continuing to fulfill his promise to David. As one of David's sons will again be on the throne, but more than that, This Jesus might be the son, the son who earns this everlasting reign and kingdom. 
Now, many Jews during this time, the time of this prophecy, they knew of this Davidic covenant. They were longing with great expectation for God to do as he promised, to send the Son, the Son of David, to restore this Davidic throne in Jerusalem. However, many of them were were looking for a king to come in the very likeness of David, to reclaim Jerusalem from the Romans, defeat all the earthly enemies. But Christ didn't come and establish this earthly kingship in his first coming. He came and established a spiritual kingship. So we see in the Old Testament this promise of David, that David himself was a shadow of Christ. Now, boys and girls, I imagine that you have drawn a picture of something before, whether it be a dog, a cat, a house. And when you draw a picture of anything, I would hope that there's at least some resemblance of the reality. If you're drawing a picture of of your dog or your parents, I hope there's some resemblance of your dog or your parents. But I think we all would acknowledge there's lots of differences, right, between your drawing, the sketch, and the reality. In a similar way, David was like a sketch, a drawing of Christ to come. So, of course, there's similarities, but there's vast differences as well. And some of the Jews during the time of this prophecy, they were were thinking that it was going to be an exact replica. No, it's a sketch. It's a sketch. And we see that Christ is establishing this spiritual throne in heaven until all enemies will be subjected under his feet. He's delaying the fullness of of this kingship until his return. But we see in verse 33 that he will indeed reign forever, as he was the truly obedient son, as we see through his entire life. He was that king, that son, who did what every other king failed to do. He came to fulfill all righteousness, which we read about in his baptism. But Christ didn't just earn an everlasting throne. A throne that, that, yes, exists right now at the right hand of the Father, but will then exist in the new heavens and the new earth. But he also has earned an everlasting kingdom. And in verse 33, we read that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, of course, Gabriel is speaking Old Testament language, as he refers to this kingdom as the house of Jacob. But in the New Covenant, who are included in this house of Jacob, the line of Abraham? Well, Paul says that it's those who profess faith. That by faith, we are sons of Abraham. We are included in this house of Jacob. The Israel of God in the New Covenant is not referring to a nation in the Middle East, but Jew and Gentile alike, all those who profess faith in Christ. So we do indeed, those gathered here this evening, we belong to the kingdom of Christ. And this kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. That's what Jesus says in John 18. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. You can't point to any other institution in this society apart from the church, and say there's the kingdom of Christ. The manifestation of this kingdom is in the church. That's why Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to the church. 
Therefore, the only institution that's promised to be everlasting, the only institution that's promised to transfer over to the new creation is the church of Jesus Christ. This is the kingdom of Christ. Every other institution that we see in our society, it's, yes, it's legitimate, but it's provisional. The church is our embassy, an embassy for pilgrims as we await the full entrance into the promised land. Therefore, as I previously mentioned, faith, a profession of faith, that is what's needed to belong to this kingdom. The temptation, though, for the church throughout every age is to add extra biblical requirements to entering the kingdom of Christ. We see this already in the New Testament. For example, the author of the Hebrews is rebuking these Jewish Christians for failing to come to public worship because Gentiles are coming. We don't want to be in a a church that has Gentiles included in, so we're just not going to come. Or 1 Corinthians 11. Paul is rebuking the Corinthians because when they come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they're treating it like a Roman feast. A a secular common feast that Roman society would partake of. The, The elites would be, have the privileged place at the table. They would get the fine drink and food and service. And the, the, those of, of lower society would be exiled to the outer rooms and would get the scraps from the table. The, the Corinthian church would bring the divisions of the world into the church. But as Paul says in Galatians 3, chapter, uh, Galatians 3.28, in reference to the kingdom. Right, the kingdom of Christ. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. When it comes to the kingdom of Christ, we all are unified by being members of Christ. Just as in the first century, you wouldn't find normally a Jew hanging out with a Greek. A free man didn't have the same level of significance an honor as a slave. A female surely didn't have the significance as males, except for the kingdom of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. In our day and age, the divisions that separate our society are, are countless. It could look like Republicans and Democrats, homeschool or even private school families and public school families. The rich and the poor, the blue-collar, the white-collar workers, the working moms, the staying-at-home moms, or even closer to home and our current climate, those who are proponents of masks and those who aren't. But the kingdom of Christ is an amazing institution because it unites those who normally wouldn't be united. But how easy it is for the church, the kingdom of Christ, to take on the character of the world and to be divided along the same lines that the world is divided upon. We see here, we're united by our confession to this king. This king who was born in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And it's this unity, this unity in our confession, that surpasses every other tribe we belong to in this world. I believe that this is part of the reason why you know, Jesus says in John 17 
that is by the church's unity. The church is unity, the kingdom of Christ, the unity in the kingdom of Christ, that all people will know that I am the Son of God. Because this unity is countercultural. You don't find it in anywhere else, any other institution in this society. Well, how does this reality, that we have an eternal king, we belong to this eternal kingdom, how does it lead to gratitude? I think first and foremost, we realize we have a place of belonging. We all desire a place to belong, a desire community. And we see that we have a place in the church that transcends the divisions of this world. We really do have the foretaste of the new creation when we gather each Lord's Day. But furthermore, we know that our eternal king is a king over the entire universe, but he specially cares for the members of his kingdom. And we know that nothing occurs in your life, in our lives, apart from his permission and will. That's why we have that promise in Romans 8.28. And the promise is not that everything in our life is good. That's not the promise. The promise is that everything in our lives will be turned for our good. God in Christ does not decree anything in your life without first decreeing how he will turn it for our good, for your good. This gives us reason to give thanks always and in everything, especially the difficult circumstances of life. As we know the Lord and the mystery of his providence is indeed working every circumstance for our salvation, for our conformity to Christ. Even unbelievers, a lot of unbelievers, seem to have some some faint notion of providence, that everything must happen for, for some reason. But apart from bowing a knee to the kingship of Christ, that's a vain hope. It's only when we bow our knee to the kingship of Christ that we have this wonderful comfort of a, of a king who watches over his members. Well, how did our eternal king earn this everlasting reign, this earn this everlasting kingdom? Well, he earned it by being a saving king, by accomplishing this mission of of salvation. I want us to dwell upon this, this idea of Christ as a saving king. In verse 31, Gabriel says this to Mary. So going back a verse. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now the, word Je- the name Jesus is the, the Greek form of the Hebrew word or name Joshua. If you take the Hebrew name Joshua and transliterate it into Greek, and you get Jesus. Therefore, the expectations of the people of God is that we have a new Joshua on the scene. Boys and girls, just like I said, David is like a sketch of Christ. Well, Joshua is also a picture, a sketch of Christ bringing salvation. So who was Joshua? Well, Joshua succeeded Moses, and he brought the people into the promised land to inherit this promised land, but he also led the conquest of 
this promised land, as they wiped out all of the nations that were living there. And the land was a picture, a picture, a sketch of heaven. And this conquest that Joshua led the people of Israel on was a picture of final judgment. It foreshadowed what Christ will do in his second coming as he wipes out all that which is unholy and brings in the new heavens and the new earth. There was, in a sense, a cutting off of common grace when, when the people of Israel entered the land. This common grace notion that God sends rain upon the just and the unjust. You know, the people of Israel were to, to exile, put out all that which is unholy. So in this sense, Israel and the land was farther ahead than we are. Because outside the land, Israel was not to wipe out their enemies. For example, in exile in Jeremiah 29, the Israelites are to seek the welfare of the city, pray for Babylon. Mary, plant trees, build homes, as we are in the new covenant age. We are to pray for our enemies. We are to evangelize them, seek the welfare of our cities. Well, just as Joshua, again, sought to clear this land and to bring Israel into this land, to inherit it, so too on the last day, Christ will wipe out all that which is unholy and bring his people into the new heavens and the new earth. So Jesus is that new Joshua who gives us the right of entrance into our everlasting inheritance. The Holy Land was a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem, the new creation. And this is the salvation that he's brought us. He's given us that right of entrance. So do you believe in this Savior Jesus, this new Joshua, the saving king. The great problem of every heart is sin. Ever since Adam, our problem is that we are sinners. And because we are sinners, we can't earn heaven. We can't earn that which the Holy Land pointed to. We need, as it were, our debt paid off. We have a great debt before God because we are sinners. But we also need to put forth the asking price of this everlasting inheritance. Christ came to do what we cannot do. He paid our debt off by dying on the cross. But he also put forth the asking price, the perfect life of righteousness that's been credited to us so that we can now be the rightful inheritors of this everlasting inheritance. All you need to do is believe. For those of us who do believe, this is a very big reason to to give thanks. Our Savior has brought a salvation that cannot be taken away. The salvation, this inheritance, isn't a piece of real estate in Palestine. This is the new heavens, the new earth. It's been sealed upon our hearts by the Spirit. Spirit's our down payment of this inheritance. So you have the greatest blessing of all and is with you in every season and circumstance of life. Therefore, every season, there's at least one reason to give thanks. Because of our saving king. Well, at this point in our narrative, Mary is likely perplexed for a number of reasons. 
And we see this in verse 34 as she responds to this newfound information that she will bear this eternal king who's also a saving king. And she says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I've not known a man. It seems outrageous to her that this young, unknown girl from an obscure city would bear the long-awaited king that every Old Testament saint had been looking forward to for thousands of years. Why would God use me? Furthermore, I would imagine she's wondering, how can my baby be these things, be the eternal king, be the savior of the world? How, How can my baby be capable of such things? Maybe the most fundamental question, which she asks explicitly, is, again, how can this be? I've not known a man. Basics of the laws of nature is you don't just become pregnant. And Mary realized this. How are you going to do this, Gabriel? The answer that Gabriel gives is that Jesus will be conceived by the power of the Spirit. And thus, he will be a perfect king. He will be a perfect king. King, which is the last aspect of Christ's kingship I want us to focus on, that Christ will be a perfect king. Well, if you look with me in verse 35, Gabriel says this explicitly. As he says, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Jesus was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. We confess this in our creed. Shows us Jesus did not have a natural father. And this language of of the Spirit overshadowing, hovering, it has rich Old Testament background. In fact, the very first time we see this, this language of the Spirit is in the opening verses of Genesis 1 at creation. We read that the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters and God said, let there be light. And there was light. The Spirit hovering is oftentimes associated with the creative work of God. So whether it's the non-created world or the womb of the Virgin Mary, God's creative work where he makes something out of nothing oftentimes happens in this context of the Spirit overshadowing or hovering that which is formless and void. Already we're cued in that God is going to do a mighty work here through this virgin. It's because of this miraculous conception by the Spirit that he can rightly be called holy. Jesus is called holy. Now, yes, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says that children of believers are also holy. But Paul isn't referring to their intrinsic holiness as if they're free from the stain of sin. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7 is that children of believers have the great benefit of belonging to the covenant of grace. Of hearing the word of God. Of being brought up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Of being catechized. But here... Gabriel is saying that Jesus is actually intrinsically holy. He is morally perfect. He's not conceived in sin as every other human being since Adam 
has been. Well, how can this be? Well, Adam is not his representative. Every one of us have Adam as our father. We are in Adam, and therefore we are the recipients of this imputed guilt that's credited to us at the moment of conception. But Jesus didn't have a natural father. He wasn't in Adam. He was the second Adam. He was going to be that alternative so that righteousness can now be credited to those who believe. We also see that it's because of this miraculous conception that he can be called the Son of God. Notice the, the uppercase S, the Son of God, the Son of David. He is the one who's able to actually bring about the fulfillment of those promises to, to David of old. It's important to note that Jesus did not just hang up his divine nature. I think oftentimes people think of Jesus' incarnation as if you know, he, he took off his divine cloak, as it were, put it in the closet up in heaven, and came to this earth in human flesh. That's not at all what happened. The person of Jesus Christ who was, is, and continues to be God himself took upon himself a human nature. So we see it's the Son of God, the divine Son of God. He took upon himself a real human nature. So that as one author said, when Jesus, who is, who is nursing at his mother's breast as a baby, is still the one who is upholding all creation by the word of his power. Verse 37, Gabriel further states the ground for this by saying, for nothing will be impossible with God. You may ask, well, why the virgin birth? Have you ever dwelt, thought about that? Why did God have to do it this way? Through the womb of a virgin? I think one reason is to show us beyond any shadow of a doubt that salvation is a divine work. Salvation cannot be accomplished by us. Just as the Spirit makes that which is formless and void beautiful in creation, just as the Spirit takes the womb of a virgin and places the Son of God in it, so too the Spirit takes dead hearts that have no spiritual pulse and gives them new life. This is a great comfort to us. No heart is so hardened, so rebellious, is unable be saved by God himself. This is comfort to us. Salvation of our lost family and friends is not up to us. It's not up to our words or eloquence. It's up to a God who saves. This is the virgin birth. Shows us salvation is a work of God alone. So to salvation is a work of God alone in the hearts of every human being. Well, how does this lead us to gratitude? This idea that Christ is a perfect king. We think oftentimes we're tempted to give thanks only for what God has done for us. And that's good, we should. We sometimes neglect to give thanks for who God is. Adore God for who he is. We see here that we entrust ourselves to a king who is God himself. And as God, nothing is too hard for him. What a comfort this is. What a motivation it is for us to pray. Nothing is impossible for God. 
Furthermore, we, know, we learn here who Christ is. He's perfect. He's sinless. Human being. There's a common phrase in Christian theology that says, what is not assumed is not redeemed. Meaning Christ had to become like us. He had to have a human nature like us to redeem other human beings according to the justice of God. So let's give thanks for this. And because he is like us in every way, Hebrews says that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with us. So whatever you're going through, even if you feel like no one else can relate to you, sympathize with you, Christ can. He is our sympathetic high priest. So it's especially in those difficult times that we have a high priest who sympathizes with us. This is much, this gives us much reason to be grateful. Well, as I mentioned in the beginning of this sermon, the cultivation of a grateful heart is difficult. You know, celebrating Thanksgiving each year is good. It's a good reminder. It gives us the opportunity to reflect on all that which we have to be thankful for. And oftentimes we do this over a festive meal, like most holidays. We commemorate things over a festive meal. But brothers and sisters, in a very real sense, we have the greatest holiday every week in the Lord's Day. In a sense, we have Thanksgiving every Sunday as we celebrate what God has done for us in the sending of King Jesus in the womb of a Virgin Mary. And we also celebrate this over a meal. Once a month, we celebrate the Lord's, meal, the Lord's Supper where we commemorate, remember, and participate in Christ himself. So let us give thanks, always and in everything, because of this king who is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of this obscure Nazarene girl. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for sending Christ to this earth. We thank you for his holiness. We thank you that he was able to do what we cannot do because he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.